we're going to try a new format. It may not work. It may work. It may not. Um, but uh, the, the point of it is to get us talking to each other. And the way the layout's going to work at the conversation at our 5 p.m. service is you're going to get an abbreviated version of my sermon from the morning. So uh, basically, I'm cutting out jokes, pretty much. And uh, <laughs> you're getting the rest of it. That's about half a sermon. Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, so you'll get the, the meat of it. And, um, and then uh, we're, we'll have a little time for reflection, so some singing and stuff. And then I'll come back and we'll have a conversation based on whatever questions or thoughts the, the sermon part evokes in you. So we've been talking about Jesus' uh, Jesus's own words, uh, going straight to the source to figure out really what Jesus believed, right? What did Jesus believe? So... We talk all the time in the church about believing in Jesus and following Jesus and how important it is to follow Jesus, and obviously that's important. But it would seem to me that if you're going to give your life to him and follow him and sacrifice for him, you probably ought to know who he really is and what he stands for and what he believes in. And in my experience in the church, we don't spend enough time talking about what Jesus believed the specifics of what he taught about God. So this series, Jesus Unfiltered, is our best attempt at getting straight to the source and talking about what Jesus um, actually said and what he believed. Specifically, we're looking at these parables. If you remember, if you were here last week, parables are fictional stories that tell the truth. Tall tales that tell the truth. So they're simultaneously fiction and nonfiction. So in Luke 15, Jesus tells three of these stories. In rapid fire succession, he tells them back to back to back. And he tells them for a purpose because uh, he wants to communicate something about being lost. Every one of these, all three of these stories is about the different ways people like you and me get lost. And, uh, and, and Jesus was always hanging around with lost people. Uh, for Jesus, people that are far from God, people that have either never heard of God or walked away from God or, in his mind, lost. And I know that makes some of us uncomfortable uh, because we don't like talking about non-religious or, or non-Christian people as being lost. But he didn't mean it in a condescending way. He just meant it to identify his target audience. Jesus said in Luke 15, 10, I have come to seek out and save the lost. And it's not necessarily that, that he thought people who were not believers are the only ones who are lost. It's just that sometimes when you're religious enough, you don't think you need to be found. And so if you don't think you need to be found, there's no real room in your life for Jesus. So Jesus didn't come for people that are self-righteous and caught up in their own religious practice. He came for people that knew they were lost. The people on the outside of the religious circle, like looking into it, right, being judged by it. And he was always hanging out with those people. And the fact that Jesus hung out with lost people disgusted dudes like me. Religious guys, priests, Pharisees, the ones who sit up here and say, holier-than-thou things and remind you that we're better than you and the guys that wear robes and the guys that give you the guilt trip that you're used to getting at church. Those religious leaders were the guys that disliked Jesus the most. 
Because their thinking was, hey, we're this priesthood, we're this club of rabbis, of teachers, and if he wants to be a rabbi, we're the ones he should be hanging out with, being holy together, being righteous and ritually pure together. We're the club. What's he doing hanging out with these people who are sinners, these people who are lost? And, and this was especially the case whenever he ate with sinners. That drove priests and religious leaders crazy when he sat down and broke bread with sinful people. Because in that culture at that time, to break bread with a sinner was to accept their sin. And if you were a righteous person, like a rabbi should be, if you were ritually clean and and upstanding and morally upright in the community, if someone who was obviously outwardly a sinner invited you to come and eat with them, you would say no. Because to sit down at their table created in the people's minds, then it created a covenant fellowship between you and them. You were friends if you sat and ate with them. And so when the Pharisees accuse Jesus of hanging out with sinners, they're not just saying he's okay with sinners. They're accusing him of being okay with sin. And that's a whole different thing. But Jesus was always hanging out with sinners. And the the religious guys that criticized Jesus had biblical reasons to criticize him, y'all. They had scriptures that they can point to and say, look, the Bible says, like Psalm 1-1, the first chapter, first verse of the big book of Psalms, says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of fools. Jesus was doing that all the time. And it drove religious leaders insane. In Luke 15 Um, the chapter where he tells these three stories we're going to look at today, Jesus once again hanging out with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, people who were not welcome in that righteous religious circle, people who might be the type to not show up at a place like this on a Sunday. He was hanging out with them. See, Jesus wouldn't be hanging out here if he were to come to Houston. He might come and say, hey, check in with us or something or criticize us and turn over some tables or something. But somebody told me when I moved to Houston that if Jesus moved here, if Jesus just showed up in Houston, the two places he would go first would be the Fifth Ward and River Oaks Country Club. Because (laughs) that's that's where Jesus would want to be the most because of the people he wanted to hang out with were people that were struggling. People that don't consider themselves religious or righteous insiders. And so here's Jesus again hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, other sinners. And the priests have had enough. They say, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. He is okay with sin. Jesus hears them talking and he tells these three stories we're going to talk about in response to their criticism. And he tells these three stories about lost things. About how things get lost in different ways. He tells a story about a lost sheep, then a lost coin, and then a lost Son, to illustrate two different things. First of all, that Jesus knows we get lost in two different ways. I mean, in in several different ways. We get lost in all kinds of different ways. And the second most important thing Jesus wants to illustrate with these stories is that no matter how you get lost, God's response is always the same. No matter how you get lost or how long you've been lost, his response is always the same. So first there's the story of the sheep. 
that got lost. Does anybody here know or can you imagine how a sheep would get lost? Have any of you ever gotten to know a sheep? Wow, y'all are talking already. I like that. Thank you. You say they're curious? Yeah, sheep are curious, I guess. I don't know. That makes sense. Stupid. Sheep are kind of stupid. Yeah. Yeah. What do you say? Following up. That's what it means like to be a sheep, right, is to, is to kind of <laughs> be mindless in the way that you do things, I guess. Here's my take on sheep. Sheep in general always disappoint you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, when was the first time you met a real sheep? And what did you think? This is not what I imagined it would be. Because we imagine them jumping over the moon or whatever, I don't know, counting sheep at night, like being fluffy and white and softer than your, you know, softest T-shirt. Because that's what, that's what sheep's wool is. It's like cotton, right? It's like just soft. And then you meet a sheep, and they're, they're not clean animals. I mean, they're, they're never, like, pure white, right? They're filthy. And their, their wool isn't soft either. You realize it's like the green side of a sink sponge that's been there a while. You know, it's like absorbed all the bad stuff. And it's just gritty and gross. And you, you imagine that when you meet a sheep, he's going to be cute and say things like, nah, you know, like, nah. But when you meet a real sheep, you realize sheep don't really say, nah. Sheep say something like, yeah, you know, <laughs> something awful, right? The stuff of nightmares. And, and, and Jesus knew sheep very well. And, and, and Jesus knew that uh, when sheep gets lost, it's not because of their own, like, willful disobedience. It's because they're ignorant. It's because they get distracted. It's because they follow other sheep mindlessly. Or they just follow their appetite. And they wander off. And, you know, hours later they look around and go, huh, I wonder where everybody else went. You know? <laughs> uh, but, hey, more grass for me, so I'm just going to hang out here. Like, they don't even care that they're lost. And you know there's people like that. In some ways, we've all been like that. Where you follow your appetite, kind of in a mindless way. In a harmless way, and then you're lost, right? And, and so that's how this sheep gets lost. What's more interesting than that isn't the sheep's lostness. It's how the shepherd responds. This is insanity. So for Jesus' audience anyway, and I'll explain, because he leaves 99 sheep who are not lost. He leaves them in open country. Those three words blew my mind this week because somehow I've missed that my whole life. Somehow my whole life I thought that this shepherd took all those 99 sheep home and locked them up inside a safe fence. And then he was like, I'll, I'll be right back, you guys. Just, just wait here, okay? Just, you're safe here. Just wait. And then he went to find the other sheep. That's not how the, Jesus tells the story. Jesus says he left them in open country to go and look for them. So last week we told a story about the farmer, and I told you that there were people in Jesus' audience. When Jesus said that farmer scattered good seed on bad soil, wasting it, there were farmers in Jesus' audience going, dude, that's not how you do it. That's not, that farmer's bad. He's a bad farmer. And I guarantee you there were people in Jesus' audience today when Jesus said that that farmer left 99 sheep in open country to go and find one lost sheep. We're raising their hands going, dude, that he's a terrible, terrible shepherd. That's not, that's not how you do things because those 99 sheep were suddenly Vulnerable to attack, to predators, to thieves. But the shepherd 
left the 99. That's just crazy talk. But that's what Jesus said. Then he tells another story about a lost coin in Luke 15, 8 to 10. Real short story. It says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? So a coin is not a sheep. A coin gets lost in a different way, right? How does a coin get lost? Falls out of your pocket. Bad luck. Got a hole in your pocket you didn't know about. A sheep gets lost because of ignorance. But a coin gets lost because of carelessness. Negligence. Someone else's negligence, right? So it's not the coin's fault. Through no fault of its own, a coin gets lost by accident, bad luck, negligence. More importantly than that is how the woman responds in the story. She lights an oil lamp. She sweeps the house. Now, an oil lamp was like this, uh, like a, a lamp you held in your hand and you just lit it and looked around your dark house because it didn't have electricity, right? And, and the sun was down and apparently it was nighttime. And, and it's like uh, when you can't find something, like you're looking for something and, and you turn your, uh, you, you turn your, uh, your, your Flashlight on, like that's, that's what the oil, uh, first century version of this is what the oil lamp was. And, and then she sweeps the floor because their floors weren't made of cement. Their floors were earthen or they, they were um, uh, loosely put together stones. And they found all kinds of coins and stuff that were lost between those stones. Like archaeologists now find coins in those cracks between the stones. And I guess that's how coins got lost back then. She did that until she found it. Then Jesus tells a third story about a lost son. A son is not a coin. And a son is not a sheep. You all know the story of the prodigal who requested his inheritance while his dad was still alive. This prodigal gets lost in a whole different way. He says to his father, essentially by requesting his inheritance before his father's dead, he says to his father, you're, you're dead to me. I don't want you in my life anymore. I'm done with you. I'm out. And so he takes one-third of his dad's money, his dad's estate. One-third is due to him upon his father's death. But he takes it early and he leaves his dad's house and he goes to the next town. And he rents a place. And he throws a few parties. And he meets a few women. And then he's broke. And he finds a job. The only job he can find is slopping the hogs for some Gentile family. And he's so hungry, he decides to go back home to seek his father's forgiveness. And he re rehearses this speech in his head. He's all the way home. He's like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but can I just be a slave in your house? How does a son get lost? If a, she if a sheep gets lost due to ignorance and a coin gets lost due to negligence, how does a son of a good father get lost? Selfishness, what do you say? Choice, ingratitude. Look, this father had given him everything. This father gave him everything for free. And, and the son's acting like he had never been given anything. Just the entitlement, y'all. Does that entitlement resonate with you at all? You ever feel like people now are, are so entitled, like all the time? Like I know I am. I know I live complaining about the stupidest things when God has given me everything. So I can relate to the lostness that comes from entitlement.
But how does the father respond? Now listen, this is different. This is interesting. Jesus' stories are always filled with these little, these little things that you'll miss. But the father is not like the woman who lost a coin or the shepherd that lost a sheep. The father doesn't go and chase after that which is lost. Why do you think the father doesn't go and chase the son? What would happen? What? It's not going to work. The father showed up at that, at that place his son rented full of, you know, uh, Wine and women probably. Loose living, it said. He blew his money on. What do you think is going to happen? The son's going to be like, oh, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> no. The son's going to keep going and keep going, keep going. So this, this father doesn't go and chase after his son, but this father waits. He waits patiently. He waits and he watches. Luke 15, 20 tells a story. So the son got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off. His father saw him in the distance and ran to him. What does that little detail tell you about the father in this story? What was he doing the whole time? Just watching and waiting and hoping just to see his son again. The son that did him so wrong, this entitled brat that took one-third of his inheritance and said, you're dead to me, Father. This father stayed there and waited and hoped and watched. And then when he saw his son in the distance, he ran to him. Now, in each parable that Jesus tells, obviously, I hope you see that God is the main character in the stories. So God is the shepherd, God is the woman, God is the father. And Jesus is trying to convey some new ideas about God that contradicted the ideas of his day. And people's assumptions about God in some ways were wrong. So what is Jesus trying to teach? I think it's found at the end of each of those stories. I didn't tell the end of any of those stories. They all end in a, in a, in a different way way that I didn't share before. So when the shepherd finds his lost sheep, which got lost because of his ignorance, he finds the sheep in the wild somewhere in the, in the field, and he throws his sheep onto his shoulders like it's a kid with a piggyback ride. And he carries the sheep joyfully all the way home. And every house he passes on the way home, he stops and he knocks on the door and he goes, you guys, I just found the sheep. And they go, that, that, that looks like your sheep. He says, it's my sheep and I just found it. And he's like, I'm throwing a party. I want you guys to come home with me because I'm gonna throw a party because I found my sheep. And people are like, dude, you sound, you sound a little crazy. You sound a little crazy. I'm going to come and drink your wine and eat your food. But still, you sound a little crazy to me. And, and, and it just sounds a, a, little, a little weird that you throw a party for a sheep that you found. When the woman finds her coin, it says it's the middle of the night. When she finds this lost coin, she opens up her windows and screams to the village around her. She yells at her neighbors and her friends, you guys, you're never going to believe this. I found a coin in my house, and I had lost it, but I found it. So I'm throwing a party, you guys. Wake up, everybody. Y'all come to my party because I found my lost coin. And then when the father finds his lost son who got lost, not because of negligence and not because of ignorance, because he's an entitled little man-child, he runs to the son. 
And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Can I just be a slave in your house? And the father responds this way in Luke 15. He says, quick, bring the best robe. Bring my robe, the family robe, and put it on my son. Put a ring on his finger, the family ring, and sandals on his feet because my son will not go without sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost but is found. What is Jesus saying about God in these stories? I think he's saying that no matter how lost you get, or how long you're lost, or how you got lost, that God will never stop hoping to see you again. He will never stop searching or watching for you to come home. And even if you've been an irresponsible or entitled little man-child, like the son in the story, he will never stop watching for you to come home. And when he sees you approaching, he sees your silhouette on the horizon in the distance, he won't wait high and mighty for you to come and grovel. He will run to you like a child. He will run to you, hiking up his robes and, and running through the weeds, getting his legs all cut up by the, the tall weeds, and, and he will run to you. And when he, when he reaches you, he's not going to assault you. He's going to embrace you. Throw his arms around you and hug you. There's not going to be a guilt trip when you come home to God. There's not going to be a, a harsh, you know, rude awakening. There's not going to be any sin shaming like you often find in churches, frankly. With God, it's not that way. There's just a loving father. There's just a warm embrace. There's just a lavish party in heaven because God doesn't care how you get lost. For how long you've been lost. He just wants you home with him. Christians, we believe that's why we're created, is to be home with God again. That's the purpose for our existence. And I know not everybody agrees with that worldview. I used to not agree with that worldview. Frankly, um, I used to think uh, it was silly. And I had all kinds of doubts in my dark season of skepticism. I had all kinds of other voices in my head saying, no, 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 God probably doesn't exist. But if, if he does exist, then he's kind of a jerk because sometimes life is hard and sometimes people suffer. And if God really existed and he really cared, he would do something about it. And so I went into that tailspin of doubt. And I learned very well how to doubt what I believed about God. I didn't learn quite as well how to doubt my own doubts. And after my experience that I've shared a lot about in the Holy Land where you actually walk in the footsteps of Jesus, you actually realize that he actually existed. That he actually walked the earth and did and said the things that he did and said. And there were actually people who knew him that called him God. And they died for that belief. At some point you start to realize that uh, when it comes to credibility on the matters of God, there's a very, very good chance that Jesus is a, a greater source, a more reliable source than you are or than I am than your college professor was, the people that fill your head with doubts about God. 
And if you really go to the source of Jesus and consider the shelf life of his teachings and the impact that this one nobody from nowhere in the first century, the backwaters of the Roman Empire, has taken over the world and the way that his teaching translates across cultures and times and places, there's something true here. I think he probably knows more about God and the nature of God than you or me. So at the end of the day, I think it's about trust. And in a moment, I'm, I'm going to welcome your questions. We're going to have a little bit more of a conversation. But for now, I just want us to sit with this and reflect about this God Jesus came to teach about, this God who only wants to find those who are lost. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for opening our eyes in some new ways. Uh, even those of us who are not 100% on board with the Christian worldview. Um, I pray that our minds are open and our hearts are receptive uh, to the ways you might be speaking to us right now. And as we sing and, and worship and um, pray and ask questions later, I, I pray that you would speak through us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so normally uh, I, we're trying to cater, uh, sort of craft this uh, service order so that there's 20 minutes, about 20 minutes for some questions and conversation. Uh, tonight we'll probably have about 10, honestly, just because we spent some time uh, explaining the process, and I went a little longer than I said I would. So that's the way it goes. <laughs> so um, what questions um, for you or maybe uh, hypothetical questions for someone that you care about who's not a believer necessarily or uh, has some doubts? Questions you think tonight's um, talk would raise uh, in your heart or in the heart of someone that you love. Questions about the nature of God um, or our relationship with God. Yep, Reynolds. The worldview of Christians is that of uh, condemning hateful uh, for non-religious people. Um, but the story you shared reflects a different God right. and a different love. Yeah. Why is there that misperception and what do we do as a congregation that wants to follow God or as people who want to get to know God? How do we help fight that? Yeah, the misperception uh, or the disconnect between what Jesus says, because really it seems like what Jesus said would resonate with most people we know who disagree with Christians. Y'all experience that? Like, Sometimes the stuff that um, really is the recipe for, let me put this back here, because it, it's going to tip over if I get out of hand. So, um, see, that's what happens. Somebody did something to it. So, anyway, uh, the, the recipe, I think, for disbelief isn't often what Jesus actually says. It's what Christians say. And to me, I think it comes down to what I said in the very beginning of the talk, which is, um, I promise Reynolds didn't see this question with me, but I, I like it. Uh, I, I think it comes down to that idea that when you hang out with sinners, it's the same thing as condoning their sin. And this idea, this holier-than-thou self-righteousness that Christians often have, this insider-outsider mentality that, um, you know, if you grew up in Christianity, oftentimes it feels like you're in this Christian silo that's set apart from the world. In fact, set apart is one of the most common, you know, phrases we use. And because it's in the New Testament, like we are set apart, we're called out to be different. And that's good in some ways, but when you really are following Jesus, you know, where does Jesus hang out? He hangs out among people that he called lost. Everyday, everyday ordinary sinners 
right? And so to hang out with sinners is not to condemn sin. I think that's the short answer. And so people always come up to me like asking questions, or, or people actually, they don't ask questions, they just feel guilty when I find out where they've been. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the club they hang out at, or the reason they didn't go make it to church, you know, where they were, or, you know, frankly, the wedding they went to that maybe the church wouldn't agree with. Y'all follow? And so is that bad? Is that like, is that in effect sin? Is that condoning something that the Bible stands against? And look, I just, if we're just going to take the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, I, I can't reconcile those two things either. And I think the more and more we can sound like Jesus instead of some of the Christians that we've known, um, maybe the more approachable uh, God would seem to our non-religious friends. So uh, what do you think? Any follow-ups or anything? you feel? I did give you a pass to hang out at certain places. You're welcome for that. All right, anybody else, guys, have any thoughts or questions? Yeah, Eric. You can get up and go to the mic, too. Nobody's going to, yeah, sorry. Uh, thanks for having the courage to do this. Uh, kind of, you, you said the, the idea is that God is the main character in these parables. Do you think there's any significance in the second one of God being represented by a woman? Just, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... My personal take is that God is spirit. So oftentimes, I mean, the, the more frequent analogy for God is, is a male character, right? A father or something like that, a king, right? But my personal opinion is that the reason why most of the biblical analogies for Jesus are male is because the Bible emerged from a patriarchal culture where malehood was seen as superior to femalehood, right? So uh, I think if you're thinking what's the ideal existence and you live in a patriarchal culture, then most of the ideas you come up with are going to be male. But, yeah, Jesus is always doing this. He, he does it a few times. He says that God, uh, he says when he's overlooking the city of Jerusalem and about to ride down into the city of Jerusalem and he feels the lostness of Jerusalem just screaming out to him, he says, Jerusalem, uh, my children, you're like my my little chicks that I want to welcome under my wings, like a mother hen welcomes and protects her babies under her wings, right? And so there's a few images of God that aren't entirely or exclusively masculine. I just think God is, is God transcends gender. And Genesis 1, 26, 27 says, male and female, he created them in his image. He created them, Right? Something like that. It's not a verbatim quote, but it's there. So <laughs> he created the male and female in his image. And so I, I just think um, gender is, a, is an important conversation for us to have. But I, I don't, I've never really been persuaded to believe that, that God is exclusively male or female. Good question. Yeah, in the back. I can't see you. Hello. Hey, I, I came back for this because I really wanted to see this format. Awesome. So you were here at 940. I was, yes. Yeah. Yes, I was here at the right. 930. Tell us your name. My name is Tanya Andrews. This is my third time here, and I do appreciate this kind of setting. Tanya, just to, not to sidetrack you, but how did you find out about the story? <laughs> Tell us that. I was in a bar, 
And <laughs> I went. Who else was in the bar? Nathan was Nathan in the bar. Was in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan was singing beautifully, and I right. met one of the members here, and then she invited me. And I've been in church, but I had been looking for something new, for something fresh that just grabbed me, that just a, a place where I could feel this. So with these parables, with the first one, I have been struck lately that with the sheep, when he finds the sheep, he brings it so close to him that, he, that, that it's at, it, it is on him. And I can imagine that if I've been that lost, that I didn't know what I was looking for, that I just wandered off, to be that close to my shepherd is just an amazing thing. And I think of the prodigal son, and, and it's not just the one that walked away, but the one that stayed. Mm. I know I've been the one that stayed. I know mm. because I grew up in church, I've been the one like, but how could you receive that and how lost was he that mm. he didn't know the goodness of the father who was right there with him, that his love extended beyond just there's so much love and just precious little nuggets in yeah. every parable. Yep. And I just I'm loving this. Beautiful. So I'm, yeah. I wanted to share. Awesome. Thank you. That was a great question. <laughs> no, that's my favorite kind of question. That's great. Just praise. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I hear that, and I think that's actually the, uh, the um, a really important topic uh, that I didn't touch on in the sermon, which is what happened at the end of the prodigal story with the with the older son that stayed, and what Jesus is saying to the people that criticized him for hanging out with sinners and bringing sinners to God. He's calling them the older son that stayed because the father threw the party for the younger son and the older son was what? Ticked off, jealous. He doesn't deserve a party. I've been with you this whole time. I deserve the party. You never gave me a party. Does anybody remember what the father says to him then? You've always been with me. You've been under my roof, under my care, living in my love, in my protection. I've always been with you. We've, our life together has been the party. And so join with me in celebrating. And listen, some of us who are longtime hardcore Christians in church every Sunday, we need to hear that. Really the message here is that we better be celebrating when people that we may not relate to on a day-to-day -day basis come to know God. We better be throwing a party with the angels in heaven and rejoicing when people we might not even like come to know God. Um, Jesus says there's going to be celebrations in heaven, and you're invited, believers, you're invited to the party. But you can also walk away, walk away and feel entitled, entitled because of your own righteousness and what that righteousness has earned you. So a uh, very, very important message that we are ready to celebrate whenever anyone comes to know God. So thank you. Appreciate that. In the back. We only got like one or two questions, more questions we got to, uh, but go ahead. No rush. Um, I'm, this is my first week in Houston. Uh, Welcome. over from San Antonio. You live here now? I live here now. Got a new job here. And just, I'm feeling pretty lost. Like, I don't really know what my purpose here in Houston is other than just my job. I don't really, like, feel connection or a draw. And What's your name? Zach. All right, Zach. Welcome. Um, so, yeah, just any advice or how if you feel really lost right now and you don't really feel connected to where you're at, what kind of 
practical steps can you take if you're feeling like a lost sheep or something like that to find your way back? Mm, good question. So, welcome to Houston, first of all. And uh, without wanting to make a downer out of this, uh, get used to the idea of feeling lost uh, now that you're in Houston because you're going to be feeling lost a lot uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, I've been here three years, and I get lost every day uh, because Siri does not know her way around this town like she says she does. And uh, we've got like three names for every major street, and they just change at random. You know what I'm saying? So uh, watch out for Wesleyan. It becomes Willowick, and Westheimer becomes Elgin, and Bissonette becomes Benz, becomes Calumet for some reason. At random, right? And uh, what else am I missing? Yeah. Uh, which one becomes Wheeler? Richmond becomes, y'all hear this? Okay, so you get it. You get it. You're going to be lost here. Another Studemont, Studewood, Montrose. Three changes within like six blocks. So, yeah, the city planners, uh, I think they were the bullied kids back in school, and now they're getting back at us. So uh, welcome to Houston, Zach. <laughs> uh, I think what you're asking, though, is, is more about what to do when you're lost and uh, I'm going to, this is one of those do as I say and not as I do minutes for me. Because here's the thing about being lost. Whenever you're lost, you never want to admit that you're lost. Like when I'm driving around Houston and I'm taking the scenic route and I'm something that's supposed to take 10 minutes takes three hours. And, you know, the, the one person I don't want to hear from is my wife. You know, because she'll be like, are we lost again? And I'm like, no, we're not lost. I just, there's construction on the street I was supposed to take. And, you know, this is, a, this is just, a, it's just a detour, you know, or I'm totally lying through my teeth because uh, I knew, I know we're lost. We, when we're lost, we often, I think, get defensive because we're insecure. And so we look for ways around thinking or talking about how lost we are. And so I suppose a really good first step is what you just did. You stood up and said, I'm feeling a little lost in my new city. You may or may not believe this, but there are now, I don't know, a whole bunch of people who heard that from you. And in your vulnerability by opening up and saying, hey, I feel a little lost right now, you have given room, I think, for the Spirit of God to work. I think there's a bunch of people now who uh, are going to uh, annoy you by how much they, they love you and, uh, and invite you to places and stuff, right? I hope. So um, I guess as trite as it sounds, admitting when you're lost is a really good place to start. And uh, I don't know where you are with God or what your spiritual uh, place is, what your beliefs are, but I think if Jesus is a trusted authority about the nature of God, then you can trust that, that if you're feeling spiritually lost, that God is always looking for you, and searching for you, and wanting you. Uh, and that, that desire in your heart to not be lost comes from somewhere, somewhere you know? You know, if, if there is within you a desire to be found, spiritually found, then my belief is that the object of that desire, the outcome of that desire, really exists. Okay? So I'm going to get a little heady here, but like imagine anything else you desire. Give me one thing you're desiring right now. Keep it clean. Tacos, million dollars. What else? 
Sleep. <laughs> Give me a few minutes, I'll get you there. The, the reason you desire those things is because they're all real things. Those things all, none of us desire anything that doesn't exist, right? So the things we desire most in life, whether it's a taco or a, or a nap, are all things that actually exist. That's why we have those desires. We're created for them. And so I would say that your desire to not be lost anymore is born out of something real. Because there is such a thing as being found and being with God again. And so I would just say, man, just keep being honest, keep being vulnerable, um, and, and trust. And trust that this feeling of being lost is just a season. There's another season to come.